Hi, and welcome to Battle Bone, your ultimate guide to everything ancient warfare. This is your host, Peter K. Bone. Hi, and welcome to this very special episode of Battle Bones. This episode is entitled The Hoplite. Because I'm going to talk a lot about the evolution of the hoplite, but before I get into it, I just wanted to give a quick apology. Uh, I was a little sick um, this past week, and <laughs> it wasn't very fun. You know, food poisoning is, is never fun, so avoid that as much as possible. And again, for this episode, I am definitely joined by my golden retriever puppy, uh, Sadie, who is noshing on a bone over here. So here's something in the background. I apologize for that, too. Um, so anyway, happy for you guys. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be a half episode. There's going to be no major battles, uh, story time, uh, which I'm developing. Next episode is going to have a really cool theme and story time to it. Uh, I, I really uh, wanted to really develop that into something that's that has a lot more energy and a lot more uh, elements to it. So look out for that next episode. I'm pretty excited um, about that. And... Yeah, so this episode is really just me talking to you about this evolution. And I think it's important to kind of gather the hoplite and phalanx evolution of classical Greece because it really is going to set up the rest of the the season. Because once we get into uh, Greco-Persian Wars and the Peloponnese Wars and all all the conflicts after that Hellenistic Age and, and, uh, you know, the fight against ancient Roman shit, uh, it becomes really important to kind of understand how the Greeks evolve their warfare. And it's important, too, because it really Greeks really do uh, affect most of the Mediterranean, right? And there, there's a lot of takeaways from ancient Greeks, uh, especially when we get into the second season, which is all about Roman. We know far more about Roman warfare than we do ancient Greece. But without further ado, let's go ahead and really talk about what is a hoplite? Greek heavy infantry, its evolution, um, the history of where it came from, and what we now really think about as, as phalanx and hoplite warfare. Uh, 7th century, as I've been talking about previous episodes with battles and stuff, um, you have more of a, it becomes very Greek. Um, and where it came from, and I think this is kind of important to kind of uh, illuminate a little bit and kind of set up a context here so that way we can kind of go a little bit further and, and not get a little stumped about what we're talking about. Um, the shield and spear, you know, the famous Sparbara, wasn't a Greek invention, right? It the, the warfare of, you know, chariots and wicker shields and spears and kind of men going at it in these formations really goes back to uh, even as far back as um, probably uh, the Akkadian Empire. And we're talking about, you know, 2000 BCE. (laughs) That's a long time, 2300 BCE. Uh, Ancient Egyptians kind of had a form of that too. And so it's not really a unique idea uh, to the Greeks, you know, and, and we even have uh, evidence of the Germanic and the, the Celtic tribes uh, in Europe kind of having a, a shield and, and spear type of warfare. 
So this is something that probably has developed uh, from the mass migration invasion of Proto-Indo-Europeans. And, you know, different sections evolved at different speeds and different rates. And the Greeks were really fortunate because they were kind of in that, that section of the Mediterranean where they had access to the West and then to the East, the Middle East. And so they really were the conflux of ideas. And for all it's worth, I mean, the Greeks, the Greeks aren't as bad as the Romans, well, at least we think anyway, of taking ideas. But I mean, the type, the type of warfare, you know, I, I believe it really did kind of descend from this understanding of the great men of the Mycenaean age, you know, Bronze Age Greece, and uh, you know, Greeks kind of venerating their ancestors because they, uh, even to the archaic and classic Greek, you know, the classical age period, Greeks were astonished and they couldn't understand how lithic architecture could be just as as robust and ginormous as it was when the Mycenaeans were uh, in their age because they thought it, these things were football cyclops. So you really have a testament to kind of how far down <laughs> quote unquote Western, we'll say that civilization kind of just collapsed, you know? And so I actually just got done reading a book called 1177, the year uh, civilization collapsed. Um, by Dr. Eric Klein. It is a fantastic read for anybody out there really wanting to get into uh, kind of like that Bronze Age uh, section of history. And man, it's the fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Oh, without getting too sidetracked here, um, let's go ahead and really get into development of the Greek phalanx. So to start off, we're going to ask the question, well, how did the phalanx actually develop? And you have... Three main theories. You have two orthodox theories and one heresy theory, which is why it's called the phalanx heresy theories. <laughs> um, I don't know who came up with these names. I don't think they're accurately describing what's going on here. If something is is proven not to be absolutely correct, I think it stops being orthodox here. Right? But anyway, uh, you have the two quote unquote orthodoxies, which is the rapid adoption theory and the gradualist adoption. The rapid adoption theory, I think, is the weakest argument here, to be completely honest with you. Uh, I know it was developed by a monetary historian, but he says between 725 and 675 BCE that the hoplite shield was super restrictive. And so thus the phalanx formation had to form because just the shield itself. Um, it's uh, it, like I said, it's a weak argument. Um you know, once once this was invented, it was just so superior that other civilizations, other city states, just had to had to adopt it, or else they would lose. I mean, you have evidence of <laughs> Greek uh, duels, right, between one on one, or you know, ten on ten, or hundred on hundred, and three hundred or three hundred, like Sparta and Argos, that really famous duel three hundred. Uh, but the shield was definitely part of Greek warfare, the round aspis. And I think it probably was a development of where a city-state developed. Um, instead of holding the shield with your hand and your wrist, and you know the, the beginning of your form, they developed the argive grip, the argive grip, <laughs> grip. Um, which meant your whole arm could control the shield, and so you had a lot of movement, and you could really use that shield in ways that probably other 
civilizations couldn't. And so maybe that aspect of it was correct of the adoption. But I mean, again, it's just a really weak argument. Like, no, nobody fought with, with shields. That, that's on one-on-one. That's kind of weird. The second, you have the gradualist adoption theory, which is about 100 years, 750 to 650. Like I said, this is really early on in Greek warfare, you know, and um, phalanx emerged and what they say the series a series of steps you can really see these steps and by 650 you know bce became so dominant that it forced other police or city states to adopt this um maybe that is the case but over 100 years i i don't think that's entirely accurate um because then we get into this idea of the proto phalanx and it's like well what is that because we already have a shield wall warfare and we know that from the style of the vultures and, you know, Middle Eastern warfare and Egyptian warfare. I mean, shield walls are a common thing, um, even up to the ancient Germans and the, and the Celts. Like, we understand that shield warfare is a part of, of human warfare for probably a while, right? Uh, and then the heresy, which is the extended gradualist theory um, from about 750 to 450, really when... Uh, after the first Greco-Persian War is really when the Greeks developed this idea of what we love, come to know and love, is the, the Greek phalanx, right? Um, it probably developed really slowly and then really quickly, you know, especially during those the war with Persia. And I prescribed him over a holistic view of it. And I think the extended gradualist theory holds a lot more water than the other two. Um, but... You know, like I said, you just kind of have to look at the whole picture and not just these theories, but just other things as well. Uh, and I really like the fact that um, I can't remember the, his name off the top of my head, uh, Van Wies, uh, who kind of developed this extended graduate theory. And he, he took a look at other cultures. Um, and I, I think he took a look at the uh, New Guinea uh, tribes and was kind of drew parallel comparisons. You obviously have to be careful about that. But I really like that he kind of did that. It's like, we'll, well, we're looking at tribal warfare and we're looking at, you know, what kind of develops out of that in ancient Greece. And so you, you have the development of this phalanx. You, you go from this archaic, uh, geometric, archaic age, really all the way down to about 480. Um, 500 to 480 is one we consider the classical age to start of course well of course the greeks it's like that did happen <laughs> they don't be like okay now the classical age starts it's a historical thing uh so we can kind of make sense of what's going on but i think it's just this development of like being really heavily armored you know they have this idea from probably extended from the mycenaean greeks and the developments that happened earlier time in the Middle East and, you know, in Egypt. And, you know, and the Kiki vase is a really interesting thing to look at because you can really draw a lot of parallels, but you also have to look at the vase in its totality too in saying, okay, well, this is, well, it was found in Etruria and we know that, you know, there were Greek, um, like Greek towns inside of these Etruscan cities because Greeks have been colonizing and trading since the 800s BCE and, you know, the uh, seven and six hundreds, um, you know, they were in the Western Mediterranean. They were establishing all these colonies and they started going to war against the Etruscans and especially against the Carthaginians or the Punics. 
And, you know, I think that we can't ignore that aspect as well. And I think it's because of the colonies fighting other civilizations and, and cultures that we kind of, that the Greeks really do develop uh, a very distinct system. It's like, okay, how, how do we overcome a lot of this stuff that other cultures are kind of giving to us? You know, there's charioteers, uh, missile troops. And so the Greeks, instead of fighting sword on sword or spear on spear, you know, the, especially that we look at the Kigi base. And I think that is a very telltale example of Greek warfare from an early period where you had lines of men, but they weren't severely deep. You know, they weren't like a block of men that we know. And it's, it, it, you have to understand that these lines of men come together, they clash, they probably threw their spears. Uh, they had definitely had throwing spears and then they get their dory out and then, you know, line comes up and they clash and then another line comes up and clashes. And then you have uh, the development of eight men deep and eight foot spears and uh, other groups of people that weren't as wealthy uh, or able to afford, you know, their panoply and their, their weapons that turn into the hoplite that we know. You have the uh, development of specialized light troops, which is going to be really important later on down the road in classical period where uh, the phalanx of men actually starts to get defeated by missile troops. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, you know, for me, it's, it's, you have to understand that like you're in battle, you want to play keep away as much as possible. And so you have, a group of heavily armed men coming at you in this, this tight formation where, you know, there's, there's discipline, there's an understanding, there's, there's strength and courage and it's hard to break, right? Cause one guy is protecting the other guy, you know, um, you got your shield in your left hand and you're, it's, it's big enough to cover you and then the guy to your left, and then you have your spear in your right, and then the other guy to your right is protecting you, right? Um, and so you don't really have to have development of, of incredibly heavy armor anymore, you know? <laughs> if anybody has, has been uh, in the military or uh, other other things where you wear like a weight vest when you're working out, uh, wearing hundreds of pounds of gear, you know, 120, 150 pounds, it, it takes a toll on you. And you really have to train with that. And so, you know, these city states really start to develop a professional uh, soldiery, you know, professional phalanxes. And then you get into uh, classical age, late classical age, where you really have a lot of Greek mercenaries going around uh, the Mediterranean applying their services because that's what these Greeks do, right? You have a development of that. So before I get any further, I just kind of wanted to really quickly talk about the arms and armor of what we consider a Greek hoplite or hoplite. Uh, <laughs> I, the, there wasn't like a standardized system. It was very customized and very different among the ranks because obviously it's whoever could afford what or whoever got stuff from their dad. Um, and, you know, repairs were made with iron and so on. But you have, you know, your aspis which was a three-and-a-half-foot three shield that was round, that was covered in bronze with wood and iron rings. Um, you're curious, you have your muscle variety, which is made totally of bronze, or you have your little thorax with uh, scale or iron rings of, of iron. 
And then you have, you know, your greaves probably made of bronze or iron. And then you have, you know, all your different types of helmets, your Chalcidian, your Pelos, your Thracian, um, along with your swords, which are also made of iron, your linal, um, your linal thorax. Uh, you have your Doryu, um, Zipphos, or your Falcata, or your uh, Kopis. So, irregardless, uh, the, the Greek evolution of this, I mean, it's just like, even still, the Greeks were just heavily armored during these periods, uh, you know, classical age, up until about the age of Alexander the Great. So, you have this evolution of Greeks having smaller um, set-piece battles, you know, these battlefields all over Greece, you know, the, the certain areas that were flat, they're like, Greeks are like, okay, we're going to fight there at this day and prescribe, you know, the, the Greek articles of war. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of battles fought in Boeotia uh, because of that. And so they go from that development to having light infantry and cavalry to protect the wings because uh, phalanx warriors beginning becoming more productive by having better formations and more discipline. Right. So now, because of the, the development of this, fighting you know other civilizations such as Trushkins and the Carthaginians, and you know the Greeks really develop uh, their phalanx, and I, I think there was a lot of. Let's just put it this way: when the Greeks start fighting the Persians, right? Uh, you have with the Battle of Marathon in four ninety. Um, Thermopylae, 480, Battle of Plataea, 479. And, you know, you really have, um, instead of kind of a set piece battle where two lions kind of go at each other and light troops aren't really, I mean, they skirmish and they kind of protect the flanks, but they really aren't part of the battle to really having that structure where they have manpower to draw on. So now you have the Sile. Uh, you know, they would hide behind the ranks of the shields and they would throw spears and stones from slings. Um, you have bowmen or Utaxa, and the first lines would clash, you know, protestes, and they would stab the other opponents, try to keep it with positions, and it's like playing a game of keep away. <laughs> um, and so I think it's important to understand that, that that's the, really the development of what we're looking at is the utilization of, of other infantry units too. So now by the time of the Greco-Persians, you really have this development of, of a rectangle block of men, probably six to eight deep, um, and a line that stretches, um, even sources say about a quarter mile. And then you have cavalry on the flanks, you have light infantry in the front, maybe hiding behind the first, uh, the first line of shields. And I don't think this development would have happened as rapidly as it would have if the Greeks didn't fight the Persians, right? So it's not just, oh, shit, the Greeks are coming, you know, in small, smaller scale warfare uh, on land uh, with these hoplites and this phalanx formation. Now the Greeks are really developing. It's like, okay, well, how do we utilize our light infantry? How do we utilize more manpower? Because Persians are coming for us. You know, we don't want to be subject to anybody. Uh, how do we? How do we? How do we beat them back? And so, instead of beating each other up, they kind of banded together and, and really kind of took the piss out of the Persians. 
So anyway, you have you know the the sale, which are you know your your light troops that are probably not have any armor, maybe a helmet, that uh, have slings and javelins. Your peltasts, uh, which really turn into an effective light infantry unit, where they are the ones that 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 throw javelins and um, your taxa, you know, your bowmen and stuff. And I don't think, you know, back then bows were as strong and arrows to really penetrate the heavy armor that the Greeks were wearing. And I think that's why the Persians struggled so much. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, you come from this time of like uh, our, our, the archaic warfare of Greeks fighting Greeks and, you know, the, the, the warrior coming out in front of the battle and you have this dual dualistic thing. You know, the guy coming out and being like, ha look at how big my testicles are. <laughs> look, at, look at my balls. Like, anybody dared me to fight. And then you go into a, a system of, of order and discipline. And that is the evolution that we're really kind of looking at. It's not just the, the formation itself. Shield ball developed into the phalanx. We know that. And, you know, over a course of a period of time, how long it took, we're never probably going to know, to be honest with you. We're never going to know exactly when the Greeks decided to band together uh, eight men deep, eight foot long spears, these heavy, heavy shields. They're, they're, I think they're 35 to 40 pounds, you know, they're wood and bronze coated and they have iron rings around them and, you know, just, just absolutely heavy, heavy infantry, you know, and to train for that, that that's a lot of, that's a lot of endurance, right? It's a lot of muscle strength to now you have, um, Stratagoy, you know, you have generals in charge of these massive formations and you have formations that are a quarter mile or more in width. Um, you're controlling pieces on the battlefield. You're, you're battling other uh, civilizations and their formations. And, you know, the, the size of battles actually, as the classical age progresses, become massive, right? We don't really see that for a long time in human history where the classical age, you just have just massive, massive battles. Um, and so now the Greeks had this idea of loyalty to their police, but it was probably more of like loyalty to their neighbors, right? You, you're banding together to really defend your home. You defend, you know, the, the trade routes, defend what, whatever it is that we're defending, but you have your brother to your left and your right. And I think that really, uh, really made what the Greek phalanx was, you know, you, you, ha you have to have some level of discipline, some level of training, a sense of esprit de corps, a sense of unity within, within these phalanxes. And so I think that is probably part of the evolution too, that holistic view of like, you really have to look at it from this perspective of like, okay, well, the Greeks go from having serving a tyrant, right? In the Greek sense to now serving the community as a whole, you're serving the police, you're serving your neighbor. And so the distinction within society of becoming a warrior in Greece was about as big as, you know, say like NFL player now or a famous baseball player in soccer. But a caveat to that is you still kind of see this like one-on-one -on -one, um, display of, of heroism, of, of warriorship. Um, and that's kind of evident at the Battle of Thermopylae um, where, you know, the Spartans, the Spartans really are, uh, they really developed a society after getting their asses kicked in the archaic age uh, into this hardcore warrior society. And the only way they did that is because they had a crap ton of slaves, which are called helots and freemen, 
who worked the farms and stuff called Pediiki. And so the citizenry of Sparta was able to kind of really develop this warfare, right? But I mean, even at the Battle of Thermopylae, right, you still have Spartans that were engaged in single combat and they would kind of get out of formation, they would fight and then go back in formation. So, you know, it, it's just, it depends on, on where you want to look and how you want to look, right? So even up until the the Greco-Persian Wars and then into the, the Peloponnesian Wars, you still have kind of that system. But the development is there. The idea of unit cohesion is there. And I think that as a part that a lot of military historians don't really understand is when you're in the military, that's what it is. You know, you really have a, uh, an understanding of serving your brother. You know, these, these are the guys that you go through hell with. And so you really become almost closer to these guys than you would, you know, your own family. So anyway, um, <laughs> Uh, with, all, with with kind of that soapboxing, you know, aside, it's it, it's interesting also to see the kind of the development of how these phalanxes arm and arm themselves, right, as well, and up until, uh, you know, Philip II of Macedon kind of develops his Sarissa Pikeman. Um, but a traditional, what we think of classical phalanx, especially in the Peloponnesian War era, um, you know, you have your panoply, uh, full bronze to those who could afford it. I think it weighed almost, what, 70 pounds. Um, but the bulk of these new massive formations of Greek armies, you know, now they're developed into armies and you have generals, the, the strategoi. Um, you have the linothorax, which has, it, it's lighter because it's made of really heavy linen sewn in and you know, bulk and, you know, pieces of iron on them now. Um, you still have the, the, the upper class uh, Greeks with their full bronze cuirasses, their muscled or the bells, um, helmets. And that's kind of who's going into battle, right? And so the, the Sili, the Siloi in ancient Greek, um, probably could just afford a helmet. Uh, some throwing spears, uh, maybe a sword, a uh, dagger. And, you know, that's what they went into battle with. And I, maybe some greaves here and there. Um, but it's just, it's really impressive that, you know, these Greeks go to war like that, you know, and they stand shoulder to shoulder and, you know, uh, they, they really kind of battle each other. Now, I just wanted to include something here. I don't prescribe or, or believe in Althesmos, which is the pushing match. I don't think it happened. I think that's a load of, of fuckery, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> why would you do that? I, that just, that really bothers me. That really, that really, really bothers me. It's like, I am sorry. I don't know whoever you are. If you don't know or understand how warfare actually works or have been in time, the situations of going to war and fighting you want to you want to play keep away as much as possible especially when you know people are just thrusting their their spears at you it's like mm, can you fuck off please <laughs> don't no don't touch me with that you know you just got your shield up you're like oh man uh i can't just just imagine just the the, the terror the the sheer grit that you need to kind of stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with another man 
arms as much as you are and just stabbing, just trying to stab him. Um, I it just, it, it, that's, that's not me. Sorry for the caveat, but I just had to put that in there because I, I just, Othismos, no, no. If anyone asked me, no. Othismos, absolutely not. Thank you. Move along, please. You're crazy. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the application of uh, short-bladed weapons or swords in you know, Greek warfare and, and the hoplite formations. So obviously with, with me saying Othismos is, is crap and garbage, uh, you have the idea of like, okay, most the middle class and the upper classes, which are probably the ones that fought in these massive formations uh, in ancient Greek warfare, they had access to some kind of secondary weapon, you know, a short sword, uh, Ziphos, which is your leaf-bladed, you know, long sword shape. Um, it kind of almost looks like a, you know, like a Roman short sword. Uh, but the Greeks used that to great advantage, you know, you able to move, kind of move around and stab the other guy with your Zephos, uh, or, you know, made famous by the Spartans, you have Copus, which is like a hunting, like a hunting dagger, a hunting knife. You know, it's recurved to the front, and so it has really great hacking capabilities. And there's even evidence of, you know, cavalry down the road being like, okay, well, instead of using your lances and spears, you know, your long, thicker spears as lances, you draw out your falcata, which is a much longer version, and it's far more effective, right? Because then it's not just a one-use thing. So development of that, you know, the, it's like, okay, the, the Greeks are still quite dangerous, you know, and uh, bows back in the day, especially the Persians found out a little too late that it was very difficult for bows to pierce the heavy armor of the Greeks. And so missiles in that era were kind of rendered, well, I should say just bows themselves were kind of rendered uh, ineffective. And so what was far more effective was uh, slings, you know, um, stones, um, ammo made of lead and javelins. That was far more effective. And then you have the development of flanking maneuvers because the Greek, you know, Greek hoplite was just, it, it was uh, very difficult to, to approach head on, right? Unless you had about the same amount of armored infantry. But there is evidence of, of you know, having really, you know, the Theros spears, your, your Peltasts, uh, your Sile, where they actually do kind of defeat uh, certain phalanxes with missiles because they, they flank and they use their javelins in close order. Uh, and so that's kind of what precipitates the more or less the downfall of, you know, Greek phalanx as well. Uh, people do say it's tied to the city state that could be, could be a thing too. Um, but I think it was more or less that, you know, it's, because we'll, we'll definitely, there's going to be a lot of talk about the Peloponnesian War and the development and just the, the, the craziness of the battles. That's where you really get the famous uh, kind of Greek style of fighting. Uh, and that isn't even against the, the Persians necessarily. It's against each other. <laughs> and they really weaken themselves, allow themselves to get picked off by the Macedonians, right? And Phil II and uh, Alexander the Great's hegemony. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about that stuff too in later episodes, but I just, this is, this, I just wanted to kind of get out, 
you know, some of the theories, some of the evolutions uh, behind the phalanx, behind the Greek warrior, and really kind of put into context this massive development. And it, I'm sorry, you know, this episode took a little while of just me talking at you <laughs> about some of these things, but it's really important to kind of understand the context of exactly what a hoplite is and the armor and, you know, the ideas behind this evolution. And, you know, we'll really get into more battle of analysis, uh, battle analysis in later episodes as well. So I just wanted to say thank you for sticking through this episode and listening to me ramble on. Uh, and, and hopefully you guys will come back for the next episode, which is going to be about the Greek Navy and the development of Greek naval warfare. So we can really get into the nitty gritty when we hit the Persian Wars and the Peloponnesian Wars. So thank you again for the listen and keep your uh, eyes and ears out for the next episode, guys. Thank you very much.